0: Welcome back to the 10th episode of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm thrilled to be joined by Brian Ko, co-founder and CEO of Slipchip, a next generation microfluidics company with a proprietary platform designed to make highly quantitative measurements of nucleic acids and proteins with minimal capital equipment. Brian is a former professor of mine from Chicago Booth, where he taught a class on how to test and grow your entrepreneurial ideas. He started two companies now in the biotech field and has been a mentor of mine since our class over a year ago. I'm honored to have him here today, and I can't wait to share his story with you all. To have you.
1: It is my pleasure to be here.
0: Um, so to start, can you tell us a little bit about Slipchip and what it does?
1: Uh, Slipchip is a molecular diagnostics platform. Uh, it's designed to do complex testing across a wide range of environments, from hospitals to point of care to global health. And uh, we're focused primarily on infectious disease.
0: So why did you want to start a company like this?
1: Uh, well in my particular case uh, and I, sh- I shouldn't say this out loud but it's true uh, I fell a little bit in love with the technology uh, the I met a professor at the University of Chicago who showed me showed me an approach to something called digital quantification uh, and when I first saw it I said there's just no way that works and, and, and because it's a way it's a way to really precisely um, measure the and Absolutely quantify uh, nucleic acids, and also to do what's called very highly multiplex testing. So we run a wide range of tests um, against you know against a wide range of targets, and to do it in a format that's incredibly inexpensive and something that can actually be manipulated and used uh, really without expensive capital equipment. And uh, he really convinced me that it works, and it does work. And as somebody who had background in this industry, uh, there were a lot of applications for this that came to mind. And so I fell a little bit in love with it and decided to, uh, I could really solve some great problems.
0: uh, Here you are. Here I am. Okay, great. Well, so I know personally that you started another company before this, but what made you want to start another company? Did you ever think of yourself as a serial entrepreneur?
1: Uh, So for me personally... Uh, I believe in a purpose-driven life, and I try and find an area uh, uh, in which to focus my time uh, that can have the greatest impact. And I was really uh, uh, proud of the work I did when I was in a large company uh, following uh, selling my first startup to that company, and it was very impactful. Uh, and I felt it was very gratifying. Uh, then I saw this other opportunity, and I thought that could be impactful, so I moved over there. Uh, it wasn't as though I really said I, I have to be an entrepreneur or not an entrepreneur. Uh, I would say from, from my perspective, being an entrepreneur is really a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself.
0: What do you mean by that? Uh,
1: you know, entrepreneurship is a mechanism to accomplish something. So when you're an entrepreneur, you're starting a, an enterprise to do something, but that's, if that something can be done as part of a different enterprise, as part of a larger enterprise, uh, that's okay, too. You don't really... The enterprise itself isn't the end. The end is what you're doing with the enterprise.
0: I love that you say that because I find that it, it's so... There's it no sense of ego in it at all, which is something that I feel must be hard for entrepreneurs. Um, and I, I don't mean that in offensive. I just mean like you're creating something. Of course, you're going to think of it as kind of you know, another child in a sense, Um but I like that because it seems like you're comfortable with having an exit if it's appropriate and still going on with your mission to begin with.
1: Yeah, I will say you know when we exited our first company, one of we didn't we weren't looking to exit. Uh, a large company came to us and uh, they presented us with an opportunity to take what we did in at our, at our company and that uh, that was impactful and to put it onto a platform that had distribution all over the country and. They really lived up to their end of the bargain, and it was uh, exactly as we'd hoped. Uh, and so that that that's the part that's gratifying is is really the impact factor for me. And you know mm-hmm. other everybody everyone has their own psychology and why they do things, but this is how I personally view it.
0: Well, I love that you bring that up since this whole podcast is kind of the psychology around entrepreneurship and what gives someone the propensity to be an entrepreneur over other people's um and go after this rather risky lifestyle. So, we're going to bring it back to your earlier years. So tell us about your childhood. You know, I know you're from Chicago, um, but what did your parents do for a living?
1: Uh, so, my father is a professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, he is a nephrologist, uh, which means he studies kidneys, and he's the world's expert actually in kidney stone disease. And uh, my mother is a Uh, clinical psychologist she actually went back to graduate school to get her PsyD when she was 40 Uh, and prior to that she actually has uh, an MBA from the University of Chicago
0: Good school I've heard Yeah. (laughs) Um, and you have only one you have a sister?
1: I have a sister and that's
0: your only sibling?
1: My only sibling
0: Are you the older or younger
1: child? I am the older child
0: I can can definitely see that (laughs) Um, So do you remember any leadership roles you had as a kid that really stand out to you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, not really uh, no I wouldn't say that I was in a particularly leadership role uh, you know it's a different era there was a much more in my view you know when I was young there was a lot more freedom for young people so to the extent when we're all young and you know, I would say hey let's go out and do something we mm-hmm. could just go do it like hey you know we're 12 let's go take a bus downtown spend the day downtown go check out something at Navy Pier or whatever mm-hmm. it, was. it was. Then it was mostly abandoned, but it was fun to walk around. And then come home, and my parents wouldn't even know where I was. So you had a little bit of uh, a little more freedom, maybe.
0: The opposite but of the helicopter parents nowadays.
1: We refer to my parents as sort of the submarine parents. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It <laughs> just went underwater, and then when they surfaced, you got back on the boat.
0: Oh, that's so good. I have
1: told. That's really funny.
0: Um, but were you always were you always interested in science?
1: No. Really? No. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, I found it painful as a kid. Uh, and candidly, you know, my father was very focused on my pursuing a career in medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if I was to if I cut myself or scrape my knee or whatever, he would just say, "Well, don't worry. It'll get better by the time you get to medical school." <laughs>
0: Uh, My dad used to say, I was in pre-med for a week, I think you'll live. He's like, oh, thanks, Dad. Yeah. That's really
1: helpful. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, and I didn't actually really develop a love of science until, uh, until I was actually older.
0: So what did you used to want to be when you grew up? Uh, actually,
1: I think I always had a, a kind of a unexpressed love for business. Uh, I don't know why. Um, Even as
0: a th- young kid, you're like, I'm going to be a businessman. I
1: like the idea <laughs> of interacting in commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, actually, and this may surprise you, I always wanted to be a military officer.
0: That is really <laughs> surprising.
1: Uh, actually, wow. applied to, I actually got the application for West Point. Uh, thought wow. about going, uh, if I would have gotten in, which I don't know if I would have. But the idea of kind of leading a team in. A focused effort of great importance was really really attractive to me and mm-hmm. I've always been interested in military history and um and so yeah that would be my other uh, other career focus
0: wow that's really interesting did you ever think about doing um ROTC in college
1: no um I sort of came to the conclusion I'm I'm a modestly above average athlete (laughs) and I just came to the conclusion for right or for wrong that maybe I wouldn't be that successful in a military environment Uh, and so I I kind of abandoned it Uh, but uh, you know be one of those things in life that I sort of wish I'd done that you know Mm -hmm. you you can't do everything but it would have been something I would have enjoyed.
0: So what so since you're my 10th interviewee one interesting thing I've learned um, from talking to founders so far was a few people have mentioned that they think adversity in your youth um, kind of gives you a tenacity later to start a business. Either they say there's kind of two camps um, either you know you grew up really poor or you had some sort of thing happen to your childhood that made you just say you know I'm going to be kind of immune to the risks that could happen. You know there's nowhere to go but up and I want to know do you agree with that kind of mentality?
1: I don't know. Uh, It's a really interesting question Um, and I don't. I haven't faced great adversity in my life. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a intellectual environment. I had, went to great schools. I was never hungry. I was never poor. Uh, I think uh, I was. I had a very independent childhood in many ways, and it'll sound bizarre to any of the listeners to your podcast, but going into business was actually very rebellious of me, given my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents were viscerally opposed. Uh, And ironically, my father said, you know, he's not sure how people in business make a living and he will not be able to support me in my old age. (laughs) So um, maybe to some degree, uh, you know, I felt like there was a pressure to, uh, you know, there was great pressure to be successful. And I had to, that was absolutely driven into me as a child. You have to be successful. You have to be successful. You have to be successful. So I've always had a, deeply felt need to be successful, Mm. Uh, but uh, I would not say for me personally, I've had to overcome adversity to get to where I've been.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, because, you know, rebellion aside, it's more of saying, you know, you want to be successful, your parents think business is not going to be successful, and it's kind of like, well, you know, almost like a screw you, I'm going to prove you that I I can be successful, and this is going to work.
1: Yeah, perhaps, right, (laughs) and You know, and you have to kind of, I was real, I was pre-med in college and absolutely miserable, like miserable, uh, hated every moment of it. And eventually you just get to this point where you say, look, I can't do this and I can't envision doing this for the rest of my life. So I, regardless of the consequence, I'm going to make a change and I'm going to go into a business career Mm -hmm. and I'm just going to find my way. And so that, uh you know that was a very pivotal moment in my life uh, and certainly one that I've uh, has been of great benefit to me
0: so when you graduated um so you didn't get a pre-med you with pre-med you did
1: I got a science major okay. so I was a neuroscience major wow. uh well sounds sounds good yeah <laughs> uh, and
0: it, then you thought like what did you want your first job to or what was your first job
1: so I actually went to work at a biotech company because that's where I could get a job. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, uh, I did, was in their research area uh, working on neurologically active dermatology compounds, of all things. It was actually very interesting research. And it was a kind of an entrepreneurial organization. It was uh, funded by venture. It had revenue. It was, uh, had cash flow. Uh, had a lot of interesting things in the drug pipeline. Uh, worked a little bit at sort of an entry level, what they call a clinical research associate. Uh, the CEO actually decided he took an interest in in my work and asked me to start what he called a drug discovery part of the company and suddenly I had a team and I was in charge of all this early stage science stuff Mm -hmm. that they were doing at the organization which in retrospect is ridiculous as 23 years old I mean who (laughs) who in their right mind does that but he was a really um, he was a really good scientist and he believed in me, and I had an opportunity to start this, and we had a bunch of very interesting programs going on. Uh, a year or two later, I think they looked around and said, oh, like, why do we have this 24-year-old running this thing that's actually important to us? And they hired a physician from Harvard who took over became my boss, uh, which was also great, and he and I had a terrific relationship. But that, that's that's really how I got started. And, and I think in that process, I started to really be interested in science mm-hmm. and the discovery of new things for health and, and, uh, you know, know, lack of, try not to use platitudes, but for the betterment of mankind.
0: Mm -hmm. So when did you take the leap to make your first company?
1: Well, my father's, um, as I mentioned earlier, is a professor and he's sort of this world's expert in kidney stone disease. And for a long time, he'd been very frustrated by uh, the fact that uh, a lot of times in medicine, what happens is great discoveries that can be a benefit to people, are brought forward, they're accepted in the medical literature, uh, and they even become the standard of care, but they're not actually disseminated to the people for whom they're of benefit. Uh, If you look across medicine, one of the greatest forms of competition is actually no care. It's not your competitor, it's that the thing that should be done for your benefit is not being done, though there's great evidence that it would help you, and we could spend hours talking about Mm -hmm. that fact. And in kidney stone disease, there's uh, 8 million Americans who get kidney stones recurrently, uh, the great source of um, pain, suffering, expense. And um, there's multiple interventions of drugs and diet that have been proven in clinical trials to reduce the rate of stone recurrence, and yet nobody was getting the the benefit of these discoveries, This is what my father had spent his life on. So he was very frustrated and we talked in, about this idea of taking his life's work and putting it into a business to bring it to uh, doctors around the country. And so the first com- the company was called Litholink and we basically started a clinical laboratory that ran the appropriate lab tests for kidney stone patients uh, with the idea of bringing his life's work and the work of others in his field to doctors around the country. And that's, that's literally why it started.
0: And so I know, um, you know, you and I have talked extensively about starting a business with your sibling, giving uh, what my brother does and how you started with your sister. Um, but, you know, just for the listeners, what were your biggest reservations and how do you set that up to be successful? Or even, you know, and including your father as well.
1: So I didn't really have reservations about being in business with my sister. Um, you know, part of it was a little bit of naivete. Uh, I was 26, she was 24. Uh, you know, you, know, you kind of don't really know what you're getting into exactly. And, uh, you know, the business plan had us being so successful, we'd all be living in Hawaii in about 18 months. So uh, that, that getting into it, maybe I should, we should have thought about it more. Uh, What worked very well, though, was we all really understood our strengths and weaknesses. Uh, And My my sister is actually very talented at pointing out one's strengths and weaknesses to you. And so um, particularly she has a unique ability to point out my weaknesses.
0: Oh, that's just every sibling, I think.
1: No, and she and I are super close. And so she really was great at operations. She's great at actually running the ship and getting all the pieces fitting together. And uh, she built... The operations of the company to a large degree, uh, with by her hand, uh, I did a lot of the strategy, the um, sales, marketing, how we're gonna grow the business, all of the peripheral, legal, and um, BD, and that kind of stuff. And my father obviously was the intellect behind everything we did, he's the world's expert in it. Uh, what was also really interesting uh a little intimidating but interesting is he just had complete faith that we'd be successful so he's like look i'm going to tell you what needs to be done from a scientific medical point of view you two will take care of it uh and we funded it from his retirement account so
0: no pressure no pressure (laughs) and
1: there we go um and and it, it worked out well
0: i mean perhaps honestly that's that's the opposite of what we said before where it's uh it's almost the pressure where you're like, well, we can't, we can't not succeed because this is everything. Uh, it's only our dad's you know
1: retirement savings. Uh, yeah, and you know he he felt like they'd put aside a certain amount of money and they'd be okay with it. I will tell you, as one of his children, uh, definitely I felt a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. be successful, and particularly when it's not going well, and a small business can consume a lot of cash relative to what's available to a non wealthy mm-hmm. person. And it just keeps consuming, like it it doesn't until you turn it around. It just consumes, consumes, consumes. So it was, you know, we spent about uh, uh, about two and a half years till we got to positive cash flow. Our burn was pretty low for a long time, but we still we burned through a bunch of cash, and you know that that was certainly not easy.
0: Yeah. So when was that turnaround point for you guys? Was it a product breakthrough? Was it like something that you were waiting on? Um, to then become, you know, to go from consuming so much cash to becoming positive.
1: Uh, it was really about getting our. So we started selling right away. So we had revenue within a f- couple months of opening our doors, and our business model and our channel and approach to the customer was terrible. Uh, it was it was brilliantly innovative, absolutely great. Dinner table conversation, and our customers despised us. <laughs> so, when we actually changed how they order things, we changed workflow. We got rid of a lot of technology mm-hmm. and went back to actually things that they found more uh, accessible. Uh, our sales really took off, and um, once that started happening, then you know you ha- we had the model for sales and revenue generation, and that actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, then then we just started uh, making money and didn't look back.
0: So what do you find now? You also have some time between you know your first company and now. So what do you find is different the second time around? Anything that's easier? I'm assuming fundraising is probably easier, as VCs always talk about wanting to find serial entrepreneurs and funding them on their next venture.
1: Um, I'd say fundraising is prob- is easier, um, and e- what needs to be done is better understood. You know, There's a lot of just the playbook of how you build a company. When you put in different things, you know, there's a, this um, continuum between, you know, two people in a room and 40 on to 100 people. And, you know, the business structure grows. You have to kind of pace that. You have to how you work with people, how you get, you know, you know authority, responsibility, structure, management, vision, all the things that you – how do you lay out plans, how do you interact uh, a lot of that stuff is just so much more facile now. Uh, so that part is definitely easier. Uh, and fundraising so far has been... Uh, we well, didn't raise money before. So, mm-hmm. you know, I can't compare it to anything. Uh, but I think it would have been very challenging to have raised money uh, in the past.
0: Is there a difference then? So before, if you didn't raise money, you don't have to deal with things like, you know, having board control. Or is that anything anything of concern for you, you know, having a venture-backed business or... A, I mean, you're not really bootstrapping before, but not having to raise outside capital.
1: Um, For me, not so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, just spiritually, even though my family was predominant and our couple co-founders were the board, uh, we always took those meetings very seriously. We prepared for them. We wanted to be accountable to what we promised to do. And that same structure exists today. Uh, we try and be very transparent with our investors, with our board. Uh, we've got a couple also great outside board members now. And, you know, just this is what we're going to do. Let's all talk about it. Make sure we're all in agreement. If people don't agree with me as the CEO, tell me. Uh, we try and focus our time on what's not going well because that's what we want to improve. And so it, it hasn't changed very much, actually, uh, for, spiritually for me. And maybe it's, it's, it depends on your investors, of course, and mm-hmm. who you are as a person.
0: And so your background is so interesting to me, especially because it's so completely different from my own, um, in software, but they talk about, you know, in the Valley and, and really everywhere, just how much important culture is. And do you find that culture really permeates this type of business and how do you make it different from your last company?
1: Uh, you know, culture is really hard to talk about in sound bites, mm-hmm. but, and there's a lot of elements to culture, uh, the more I've been in business, the more important uh, I personally feel culture is because culture is what um, it, it basically is how people interact with each other, what they do when nobody's looking, uh, how you um, how you uh, hire, like what do you look for? What kind of people are you? What environment do you create? Uh, really? And, and how sustainable is what you do? Uh, I mean, everything, a lot of it just comes back down to culture. Uh, so, You know, we try. We have certain things we try and do in our culture. We try and say, you know, we have meetings to talk about what the expectation is. I think it's really important as a leader to say out loud, this is the kind of people we want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, For us, we're very transparent. I can't stand politics. You you have to have an ability to communicate freely and openly. You have to have uh, a culture of excellence uh, where... You know, excellence is recognized. It's very different from not excellent, and it should be rewarded as such. And we need to be honest about what went well and what didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you have to have a culture uh, where uh, people can be candid uh, from the ground up. Um, you know, if people can't tell the emperor they have no, you know, the emperor has no clothes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a disaster. And uh, for us, you know, we also just want a place where people actually want to be. Uh, you know a lot of work environments are not pleasant uh, where we have our own you know I think our own culture where people actually I think they like coming to work we all work hard we're all very friendly Uh, it's not sort of the hey let's go out and like drink a bunch of beer to show how much we like each other but it's Mm -hmm. really just you know I think everybody in the company we all would hang out with each other have lunch uh, talk to each other openly and I think we all have very good relationships
0: yeah I love that answer I think sometimes that in um, when I was living out in San Francisco, it seems that you know having beers is synonymous, with, or having to be best friends is necessarily synonymous with a great culture. And I think you know still wanting to have your personal life outside of work doesn't mean you have a bad culture. <laughs> um, and I I do find it interesting though, as the CEO, how do you ensure that people do feel comfortable to tell you, that, you know, that you know that you don't fall prey to the emperor has no clothes phenomenon? Just because I would imagine it's intimidating for someone to join the company um, or if they're relatively new in their career to find their voice and speak up and say, you know, I don't agree with you.
1: You have to actually ask them. I ask people specifically and say, look, when I'm I'm talking to employees, I'll often say like, look, uh, I'd love to hear from you about what I I specifically am not doing well or what I could do better. And because that's really helpful Mm -hmm. and I will not be offended, But it's incumbent on you, as part of our team, to tell me the truth. So you need to say, like, "This is not good," and/or this could be better, and just say so. Like that's really, really helpful. And if you ask people and you give them basically the license to to tell you what's not going well, then then they usually do. Uh, if you Uh, and you know it's on me though not to react negatively to criticism i might disagree with it and say you know i i hear you i don't know if i agree with it or i don't agree with it. we can have a candid conversation about what that means or doesn't mean uh or it's really good feedback i appreciate it and then do something about it Mm -hmm. and then if you if people see that they can bring something up you they're heard and the reaction whether it's what they would want or not want it's it you know something is done or there's a response, then I think you encourage communication.
0: That's great. And so for this final few minutes, I'm gonna to switch to what I call like my fun question segment. Um, so what industry do you think will be the next big thing to explode in 2017? Or where do you see some trends going?
1: Uh boy, I you know, we're all jaded by where we are. Um in the healthcare um Tech, biotech, you know, industry. Uh, the first thing is, you know, the information is driving science, and so, uh, you know, things that, um, and, and it's across the board. And you know, whether it's in decision support, which is a lot of what I did at Litholink, um, how do you, how do you help doctors make decisions? Uh, and a lot of that's tied to software, integrating software into diagnostic testing. Uh, I think that's a very interesting area. Uh, I think a lot of interest in uh, the human genome, mm-hmm. the uh, transcriptome, the epigenome, the proteome. Uh, these are uh, increasingly uh, accessible to scientists. And, uh, you know, just for the, your listeners who don't tie into this as closely. Uh, the rate, the cost of sequencing human genes has fallen far faster than Moore's Law uh, in chips and, in, from, you know, in memory. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of, there's a lot of power in that, and we're going to learn a lot about the fundamental underpinnings, underpinnings of life. And I think that's going to be very impactful for um, medical care and just also just understanding the world around us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um- It's funny, my brother for Christmas got my grandma as the the 23andMe. Yeah. So they did that, um, which is funny that it's now like a gift to people. Right. (laughs) Um, And then my friend wrote this, uh, he's trying to put together this information on CRISPR, and I didn't know anything about it until I read his articles, trying to Compile. And I I think that was so funny to me because I was was thinking this could have one of the largest impacts in our society, and no one really talks about it, so... Um, but it was hard to even find information about it. I just I felt so oblivious to what was going on.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, if you're in the world which I live, yeah, people talk about CRISPR a lot, yeah, um, and the sure. implications both scientifically and also from an ethics perspective. Of it's course, it's yeah. very 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 uh, interesting and potentially scary. Uh, but yeah, CRISPR super interesting. Uh, Also, uh, the idea of using your—it's been around a little bit—but the idea of using your own immune system to target cancer that you have is very interesting, and I think getting uh, getting real—I mean, it's getting actually to be real.
0: God, I wish I see. I need to subscribe. I get all my tech news from these daily newsletters. I need one for healthcare. Just so, um, just not my realm of expertise at all. Okay, so if you, what products are you a really big advocate of, whether in your personal life or, or not necessarily a tangible product to be a software product or what do you find that you're always telling people about the way we talk about it in class, kind of like your customer advocate?
1: Wow, uh, you know, in my personal life, I'm so bad with this stuff that you will laugh. Yeah, uh, you know, I actually don't have a Facebook page. Really. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, as I think I mentioned to you, uh, that's
0: like cool now, though you know.
1: Yeah. shoeing
0: social media.
1: Well, my son says Facebook's for old people. Oh, okay. So, um, uh, you know, I like Spotify. Actually, I I think it's pretty great. Uh, But I don't really, um, I don't really have personal tech products that I would say this is like my life revolves around this. Mm -hmm. I would say if you're dealing in my professional life, there's so many toys. (laughs) Uh, That I could talk to you endlessly about them but uh, for for me I just I I think often less is more Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm pretty happy just uh, you know reading the paper by the fire on the weekend
0: yeah I still like getting the physical paper actually Um, and finally if you could interview one founder who would you most want to interview and why
1: Uh, I have a few Um, you know I think you know, there's, there's a lot of really extraordinary founders. Um, obviously, Elon Musk is extraordinary in what he's mm-hmm. been able to accomplish. I mean, actually building spaceships and missiles, uh, I, you know, when whole governments are unable to do so is, you know, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. I never understand the business model there exactly. But, wow, you know, solar, um, Tesla, obviously, you know, so he's done some really extraordinary things. Hyperloop. Um,
0: well, I'm, I'm hoping for the hyperloops to move back to California.
1: So yeah, he might be my first choice. I you know I'm also I have to say I'm very fascinated by Michael Dell. I think, you know, he's taken a business that's been commoditized long, long time ago, in many respects, and he's built a powerhouse of a company. And that's, as a business person, to be in, in the arena. Like you are in the Coliseum and you are slogging out every day and you are just crushing your competition day in day out, day in day out. He's obviously an extraordinary leader, and I'd be—he's—he's he's very interesting to me as a CEO. Uh, so maybe those might be my—I have there's a long list. I'll throw that out as my top two.
0: <laughs> no, that's great. Well, thank you so much for being on my show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you.
1: Uh, my pleasure. Be.
0: it for this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host Chrissy Costa and I'll see you next week for episode 11.